I want to say Summer is here. Summer's been here for quite a while. Uh, we moved through, as most of you know, if those of you who don't know, I'm the lead pastor here at Central, but I'm new. I started in May, first week of May, and the first week of May, the sun started shining all over the United Kingdom, especially in Edinburgh, and we've enjoyed what, what has felt like already the summer. Uh, Kirsten and I, we went off to Mallorca this past week. Uh, our, one of our closest friends' son was getting married and was chosen to get married in Mallorca. So we weren't planning a holiday, but we ended up going for his wedding. We'd been invited, and it, and it was lovely. And then we came back Thursday night. Kirsten's dad picked us up, and he said, oh, it's been raining this week, and it felt really, really cold. But don't worry, summer is not over, okay? I've checked the weather forecast by next weekend, okay? The heat will go up again. And over the course of the summer here at Central, we are going to think about this phrase, one another. It's a little phrase that's repeated many times in the New Testament. I'm going to explain a little bit about it uh, for you today. And over July and August months uh, and the weeks that we're gathering together, we're going to look at some of the, the ways this phrase is used, some of the one another phrases in the New Testament. There's quite a few of them, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in just a moment. Um, as you saw on the screen, or if you've checked out our website or any literature you receive for us, you will see that there are basically three core values that are underlying everything about us as a church. We exist to love this city of Edinburgh, we exist to be a family together, and we exist to follow Jesus. And this series over the summer, um, it impacts one and two, but it's really going to be looking at the middle one of those core values. What does it mean to be family together? And this little phrase, one another, reminds us that it's not about me, okay? It's about us corporately in, in our lives, in our faith, and particularly as we are Christians meeting together as a community. It's about us. It's not about individuals. There's, there's far too much emphasis in our society placed on the individual today, where the individual is elevated almost to God, uh, and it becomes so much about the individual and who you are and, and, and your life and your values and your destiny and who you think you are. Not that those things aren't important, but if those things are pursued to the exclusion of other people, then it becomes a very, very self-centered life. And even in churches and, and, and in faith communities, it can become like that too. It's me and God. I remember when I first became a Christian, someone gave me a book, and it was called Me and Jesus. And initially, I thought, what a, that's a nice title. But as I reflected on over the years, it's not. It's not just me and Jesus. It's us together. And this phrase will hopefully help us as we go through these weeks to understand more about what it means to be a family of people together, uh, a community that reflects God to the world. Um, it's a little word. Uh, I say word because one another in English is only one word in the original text, and it's the Greek word alelon. There it is right there. I have paraphrased it in case you can't read Greek. Um, which I'm sure you can't. It comes from another word, alos, which means something that's different, another, or someone else. And this little word, alone, is a very, very common word. 
It's one of Paul's favorite words. Paul wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, and it was one of those words he used over and over and over again. Um, it's used over 100 times. And it's almost like when Paul wrote a letter, he couldn't not write a letter without including this word. It was so important for him. It's just a little word, but it is packed with meaning once we understand the significance of this idea that it's not about me, it's about us. And when churches got into trouble in the New Testament times and right down through the years, it's normally about when it becomes about personalities, when people become too important, when it becomes about me or him or her to the exclusion of others or your views against my views. Normally, churches just fracture and split and get into all kinds of problems. And it was the same in the New Testament. And that's why Paul wanted Christians to understand the meaning and the significance of this little word. If you can just grasp how important it is, then it can change your whole life. As I said, it's used a hundred times. So, in all, the phrase is used in 33 different expressions. Now, we've only got, I think, seven, is that right, Zach? Seven of them? Six? Six or seven, something like that, over the course of the next couple of months. So, we're going to give you a flavor but if you want, you can uh, go on to Google. If all you have to do is type one another, New Testament, and I guarantee they will all appear. If you don't know how to do that, come and see me afterwards. I've got a, uh, a sheet with them all printed out, and I'll give it away with you. It would be really helpful for you maybe to think about them. There's lots of others. Maybe you want to do a little study. Maybe you meet with other people. Maybe there's a community that you're part of. It's a great study to do these different phrases in the New Testament. So that's where we're going to go. Here's a few of them. So, I'm not going to mention all of these. Just look at this screen, okay, for a moment. This is about two-thirds of the phrases that are used, okay? We're going to pick up on some of these over the next few weeks, but this is just to give you a visual um, impression of just how common this word is used. There's it in the middle, and all of these words around the outside of it are different ways this phrase is used. But let's get to the heart this morning of what we really mean when we talk about alone, one another. The very start of the Bible, this phrase is used how we are made in the image of God. As human beings, alone of all God's creation, God has made marvelous trees and plants and rocks and hills and planets and uh, shrubs and all kinds of variety of things, we as human beings alone are described as being made in the image of God. But what does that mean? People are confused over it, they've argued over it, they've pondered it, and tried to understand what does it mean. Well, it certainly doesn't mean physically, because God is spirit. It's not that we look like God. God doesn't look like me. Okay, it can refer to the characteristics of God, His qualities, His attributes, if you want to use that word, like grace and kindness and mercy and compassion, all of those words. But supremely, it means that we're made for a relationship. As Christians, we have a, spe a specific view of who God is that it is unlike all other world religions. We respect other faiths. 
we're not there to, um, to criticize and certainly judge others, but as Christians, we have a unique view based upon what the Bible says and what Christians have learned through history of who God is. And it's simply this, God exists in a community. He's not an individual. And this is why individualism is so, so dangerous. If we think it's just me and this other individual called God, it's not. We believe that God exists as a father, as a son, and as a spirit. Three persons, all sharing the same essence, the same fundamental being, and they have existed from all eternity in a perfect relationship of love, of mutual love, where they just get one another. They don't argue with one another. They just indwell one another and mutually share this relationship based in love. Early theologians tried to describe this, and they came up with this phrase that I'm not going to use today about the third century, but we translate this phrase as to dance together, okay? A mutual dance, kind of like a Scottish dance, not dances where you're dancing with another individual, but more like a group dance, a, a Cayley kind of a dance. And, and it means that they join together, join hands, join in a circle, and they just dance together in this, in this rhythm of life. That's what God is ultimately like. And for us, therefore, to be made in the image of God, it's about our relationships. It's about the fact that I am here for you, and you are here for me. I am here to learn about your story, and you're here to learn about mine. I'm here to join you in your journey through life, and you're here to join me in mine. And that's what churches exist for. That is why we're here, to be a community. You'll notice I've put the picture of the cross, which reminds us of the vertical and the horizontal relationships, okay? That when, when we think about a cross, we think about our relationship with God, but we think about our relationships with each other. When Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just die to reconcile us to our relationship with God, His Father, but He also tried, he, he died on the cross to break down the barriers, the obstacles, the hindrances that exist between us. He came to actually join people together so that there would be no divisions, there would be a unity amongst us as human beings. And when we experience that, we see something of who God is. So that's, in essence, what we're going to be talking about. Okay, I'm going to try this. Every hand went up in the first service, okay? How many people remember Happy Families? Ooh, that's impressive. That's better than I thought it was going to be, okay? For some bizarre reason, when I grew up as a wee boy and we went on holiday, we always took a pack of Happy Families with us. Only did it on holiday, didn't play it any other time of the year. We made sure, it was always like, Dad, have we got the Happy Families in the car? Yes, okay, off we go to Scotland. Okay, get on the ferry at Larne, we come across, we play Happy Families on the ferry, we get across the other side, we're driving up to the caravan site, we play Happy Families in the back seat of the car, we get out, we go to the caravan, we play Happy Families, we go to the beach, we play Happy Families, we go to bed at night, oh, let's play Happy Families one more time before we go to bed. I don't know why, okay, so don't ask me. That shows how sad I am. Um, but really, Happy Families, if you don't know, is a simple, wonderful card game that anybody can play, not just kids. You have basically four people, uh, four cards representing four members of a family, 
Um, I'm not even going to try to read who these are. I think it's Mr. Soul, the fisherman. There's Miss Field, the farmer's wife. Oh, I'm not doing too bad. Oh, and there we go. It's gone. <laughs> Obviously, I'm doing too well with my happy family's picture. You turn all the cards over, lay them all out, and then one at a time, you turn them over to try to find a match of four, and then you get a family, okay? And the end of the game, whoever has the most cards wins the game. So happy family is, uh, was something that we did grow And this reminded me this week of the importance of us being family and taking the time, okay, to actually get to know one another and experience what it is to be family. The other picture that, that might uh, appear that I was going to put up was a picture of a family who are very, very popular on TV, okay? Uh, guys called the Modern Family, okay? I don't know if you've seen Modern Family. When, when we were in Canada, it came out in 2009. I remember we watched the first series and laughed and laughed and laughed more than we'd ever laughed in our lives, it felt. We could not wait until Modern Family came on TV and the Pritchetts and the Dungies, uh, you know, did all their weird and wonderful things. Hap Modern Family is a CV series that lasts for 11 years until 2020 about these, this mixed family uh, of people set over in California. Um, it's really worth watching. It really, really is. I will give you an insight into what a modern family looks like, a blended family. Uh, one couple uh, I've got three kids, they're kind of your typical nuclear family, and then there's a blended family of an older guy who's married this lady from Colombia, and they, she is an adopted son, and then there's a same-sex family in it too. Very, very mixed of what a modern family looks like in our society today. But whichever of those pictures, are we going to get them? There we go. There they are, the Pritchetts and the Dungies. That's what I'm talking about. Whichever of those you relate to today, we're thinking today about the importance of being family. So get back to the Bible, Don. You've had enough uh, talking about rambling things of holidays and TV programs. We're here to hear what God has to say. In the New Testament, when Paul, the writer, is talking to Christians in churches, he has all of these things called household codes. In other words, here's the way that you treat one another, okay? If you're part of a family, if you're part of a household, this is how you live. This is how you treat one another. If you want to have a happy family and a meaningful family, here are the basic codes, household codes, that we all sign up to, that we agree to. And if we don't, then your family is dysfunctional and will not um, be very good. And he mentions these in many of his letters, but I'm just going to focus on a few from Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8 is one of those verses that many Christians love. They can memorize it and repeat it to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, um, uh, and there we have it. I grew up learning that verse thinking it was talking about me. And it's partly talking about me until I started to study the Bible later on, and I realized that the little word you is plural. It's not singular, okay? In the old King James Bible, in other words, it would be ye, not you. And ye means plural you. So what Paul is trying to get across in this verse is not just that this is how you can know God and be saved, but it's the fact that we've all come to God the same way. I come to God through His grace, 
by faith, but so do you. And when we all come to God, we're part of this family. We've all come the same way. And Paul is trying in this phrase to say, if you've all come to God the same way, and you're joined together by the grace of God, by this common faith in God, what does that mean for you? What does it mean? It doesn't just mean, great, I'm going to go to heaven one day. That's not what it means. It means it has implications for how we live our lives. In this same chapter, Paul then goes on to say this, he has made the two one, destroying the barrier between them. His purpose was to create one new humanity out of the two, and in one body to reconcile both of them through the cross. To what? Both of who? What's he talking about? In his culture and in his, this church, there would be groups of people who maybe come from a Jewish background and people who come from a non-Jewish background or what's called a Gentile background. And many times in churches, these people just didn't get along together. They had their traditions, they had their beliefs, they had their Bible. These people didn't have any of those things. They didn't have the Bible that the Jews had. They didn't have the, view, the, the, the beliefs that they had, the culture, the traditions and all that. And you put these two groups of people together, then sparks are going to fly. And that's what was happening. There were people who were trying to follow the rules that their traditions had brought them up with, and other people who didn't have these. And Paul is trying to say to them, listen, wherever you've come from, a religious or if you want a non-religious background, we're all in this together, all of them. And when Jesus died for all of you, he broke down those barriers. It's not about you coming with your laws and regulations and traditions, trying to impose it on them, nor is it you judging them. And I'm sorry, it's almost like this is the religious group and these are the not. Just trying to use an illustration here, so forgive me. Okay, you're just as good as they are. Um, but you know what I mean? It's not like you say, well, judging them and say, you shouldn't be telling me how I live my life. This is what was going on, and Paul wanted to address this. He also then says to them in chapter 4, listen, we're all members of one another. There's that phrase again. We're literally joined together by God's grace, by our faith, by our relationship. We're joined together. And then he gives them a few examples of how to practice this. These are some of the ones that you will hear in later weeks. He says, be patient. Bear with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another. Submit to one another. But my friends, today I want to say to you why I believe this message that you're going to hear is the most important message in this series. And it's not because it's me, okay? It's not because this is the first one. This, what we're going to share with you today in the remaining time is the most important because without what you're going to hear next, all of these others will not happen. Trust me, they won't. You can try to speak to one another in a kind way, in a compassionate way. You maybe want to submit to put somebody else before you. You may want to forgive someone for what they've done to you, but none of these will happen without the next one. And it's simply this, love one another. 
love one another. It's the most common one another that's mentioned in the Bible. Naomi has read from it in 1 John. It's mentioned in the Gospel of John frequently and all of Paul's letters. This phrase comes up over and over again. It's about love. Because, you see, without love, your communication to another person may not be very healthy. Without love, you will not be able to put someone else's needs before your own. Without love, you won't be able to forgive someone for the things that they've done to you. Without love, kindness and compassion just won't flow out of you, or it won't be from the right motives. Love is at the heart of everything that we are called to be and do. Jesus said to a young man one time who came to him with a tricky question, he said, Jesus, see all of these commandments okay, that are in the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of commandments that God gave us, which is the most important? What's like number one Jesus? What's the top of the list? He's literally saying, of all the commandments, Jesus, which comes first? Top of the, top of the charts. What's number one? Jesus said to him these words, love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And this is Jesus, not me, not anybody else, but Jesus saying, there is no greater commandment than this. So Jesus says, this is the greatest one. Without this, none of the others will happen. If you grasp this, if you seek this, if you want to live your life this way and ask that God will equip you and empower you to do it, the others will flow out of that. But without this, they just won't happen. That young man was trying to trick Jesus. He didn't really want to know the most important. He was just coming to try to test Jesus with a trick question. And he walked away afterwards as though Jesus hadn't really answered his question. So the most important one, Jesus said, is to love one another. On the night before Jesus was going to die, he gathers his disciples together. It's recorded in all of the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. In chapter 13, it says he takes a towel, he takes off his outer garment, he, he bows down, he removes their sandals, and he goes around his disciples and washes their feet. Humility, taking the place of the lowest servant, the lowest slave. And he says, if I've done this to you, then so you are to do the same. Don't lord it over people. Don't try to boss people. Don't try to control people. Okay, serve people in love. And if you serve people in love, you will become the kind of people I want you to be. In other words, he says, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you want to be like me, Jesus says, and you want to reflect me in the world, then love one another. This is the greatest demonstration that Christians can do to show that God is real and that God exists. Not by arguing with people, not even by our apologetics, which means trying to offer reasons for the existence of God. They've got a place, but I, I don't know very many people who say, I became a Christian because Zach convinced me that God exists somewhere in the universe. Or, or Naomi just answered all my questions, okay, and absolutely convinced me. It just doesn't happen that way for people. But when we love people, 
when we serve people, when we take time to listen to people, say, I don't know the answer to all of your questions, but I still love you and I care for you, that makes an impact. But also when we don't do that, when churches are not known for love, when they're known for anything but love, it drives people away from God. And I was sharing in the first service, I read a quite shocking book about four years ago, just before COVID that came out, called The Invisible Church. It's written by a, a Scottish minister who lived up in Inverness, uh, and he was just curious one time as to why people who used to go to church stopped going to church. So he went around his housing estate, he knocked on doors, and he said, excuse me, can I just ask you a few questions? Did you used to go to church? Yes? Okay. Why do you not go? And he wrote down their answers and thanked him. Then he thought, I'm just going to keep going. And then he did an online survey, and then he went to other towns, and he did thousands and thousands of, of these surveys, and then he wrote a book called The Invisible Church. And the book is basically trying to show why people no longer in Scotland go to church. There's quite a number of reasons, but the top of the list the main reason people stop going to churches is because of lack of love. Because they went, they were hurt, they, something was broken in their lives, their lives were falling apart, they were curious, they went, expected to be heard, welcomed, loved, and accepted, and they were rejected. And as a result of that, they say, I'm not going to go to a place like that, why should I go back again? We are known as disciples of Jesus by our love. This young man that I met today for the first time came with a lovely, beautiful young woman who he is going to marry soon. I'm not going to embarrass them by mentioning their names in public. They've come here today to visit our church. This lovely young lady, who again uh, uh, is a friend of mine, had the privilege a few years ago of baptizing her. She came to an Alpha course in our church, really owned her faith that her parents had brought her up with, just owned it for herself, and asked if she could be baptized. And it was a wonderful, wonderful day. And um, the reason why they're here today is not just because they like Central, this is their first time, but they're here because they're going to get married. And she has asked if I would do their wedding. And I am blessed and touched and honored to be able to do that. I don't know if they're going to choose these words or not, but these words are words that we hear at so many weddings. Not just weddings in church or Christian weddings, but all kinds of people know these words. When I was in Canada, I, I used to get invited, again for some bizarre reason, to do weddings of paramedics. I think there were a couple of paramedics in our church that had a wedding and then all other paramedics came to it. And, kept asking me to do them. I ended up doing nine paramedic weddings in my time in Canada. And every time we would meet, a lot of these people didn't go to church. And I say, have you got a reading or something you would like to share? We say, not sure. Could you suggest one to us? Normally, I would suggest this, and they would go, oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. What amazing words. Where did they come from? I guess that shows you better society today, but they are. And so today, just as I draw this to a close, I've got one more, th more thing to say after this. I'm just going to read this slowly. I'm not going to kind of do a sermon on this or exegete these words or tell you what the Greek means or anything like that. I'm just going to read these beautiful words. Um, so just reflect, just look at the screen as I read these words. If you want to know, well, what is love? There's a word that we use. Okay, what is it? I'm not going to define it. With, I'm just going to read these 
beautiful descriptions. This is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. It is not easily angered. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. I encourage you, just as I'm speaking and drawing this to a close, just to keep looking at these beautiful, beautiful words that Paul was inspired to write in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, in case you don't know. After he wrote these words, he concluded with this phrase. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. See, for many Christians, they wouldn't agree with that. They would say, no, the greatest is faith. The greatest is what we believe, our beliefs, our doctrines, our views, our traditions. Paul says, no, it's not. They're important, but they're not the greatest. Some would say, well, our hope for, for the future, heaven, and what happens when we die, our whole ultimate hope, that's what's most important. Paul says, it's not. It's important, but it's not the most important. The greatest of these is love. And I want to finish this morning by sharing a story before I hand back to Zach and the team. This is a um, guy that you will probably not read off in any church history book. I've never read one where he's even had a mention, and I love reading about church history. He's an obscure um, Polish Franciscan priest called Maximilian Kolbe. If you've done the Alpha course, they do refer to him, maybe not by name, but they refer to this story. He lived in the early 20th century. As we've said, he was a Franciscan priest. Um, but when he was a little boy, he didn't know what was going to happen in his life, and he was praying. And one night when he was praying in 1906, he had a vision that was given to him by God. He was praying, what do you want me to do with my life, God? And in this incident, in the vision, he was asking the Lord what was going to become of his life. Mary, the mother of Jesus, appeared in his vision holding two crowns, a white crown and a red crown. She asked him, are you willing, Maximilian, to accept either of these crowns? What do they mean? He saw it here in her vision. The white one means that you will live a life of purity and devotion to God. The red is that you will become a martyr. I said to her, I would accept them both. I will accept them both. Moving forward, the World War II broke out in 1939, as we know, by the invasion of Poland, the country where Maximilian lived by Germany. Colby was one of the few brothers who remained in the Franciscan monastery. Many others fled the country. He chose to stay in this monastery just outside the city of Warsaw. 
as people got injured and, and, and the war continued in this country, they, they transformed the monastery into a hospital where they would care for people and, 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 and bring people in and seek to care for them and, and, and hopefully help bring healing to their lives. Eventually, the town was captured by the Germans. He was arrested in the September 1939, questioned, and then was released again in December. One of the things that they did when they arrested him was they say, will you sign this document, a document called the Deutsch Volkslist. And what this was was a list of people who had German ancestors. If you had German ancestry in your family and you signed this, you would be exempt from any arrest or persecution. And he did. His father was from a German background, but he refused to sign the list. On his release, he continued to work in the monastery through prayer and caring for people, and eventually they sought to provide shelter for refugees, especially Jews, who of course were then being arrested and persecuted and taken off by the Germans. At the, at the height, they gave refuge to over 2,000 Jewish people in the monastery. He would write various works. Eventually, the Germans realized what they were doing, and the monastery was uh, eventually shut down in 1941 by the German authorities. Colby, four other brothers who were remaining there were taken by the Gestapo, and they were taken to a prisoner of war camp. And then on the 28th of May, he was transferred to Auschwitz, prisoner number 16670, no longer Maximilian Colby. He continued to act as a priest in Auschwitz, praying for people, pointing people to the love of God, showing in any way he possibly could a different way to be human. Colby was subjected to violent, violent harassment, regular beatings, even lashings, and his body became so weak at one stage, he had to be smuggled to, into the prison hospital by some of the inmates. The end of July 1941, three prisoners managed to escape from the camp. The camp commandant, Carl Fritsch, was so irate that he picked 10 random men from the camp, brought them forward, and told them they were all going to be starved to death in an underground bunker to deter any further prisoners trying to escape. One of these men, Francis Gajonacek, cried out, but what will become of my wife? What about my children? When Colby heard this man speak, Colby took a step forward and he says, I will take his place. The commandant agreed, sent all the rest of the men away, and the ten, including Colby, were put into the underground bunker and left without food or water um, indefinitely. According to an eyewitness, a janitor at the time who would look into this, this cell every single day, he would see Colby on his knees, <clears throat> leading the men in prayer, praying that God would sustain them. One after another, the nine men died. Each time the guards checked on him, when he was still surviving, he was either standing in the cell or kneeling in the middle, looking calmly at his persecutors as they looked at him, waiting for him to die. After nearly three weeks of dehydration, 
and starvation. Colby was still alive. They couldn't kill him. The guards entered the cell, took out all of the bodies of the other men, and realized they would need to do something to get rid of him. So they decided they would give him a lethal injection of carbolic acid. They came into the cell, and he raised his arm, prayed, and they put him to death. And he died a martyr, calmly, without any words. This is one of the things that he says. Let us remember that love lives through sacrifice. It is nourished by giving. Without sacrifice, there is no love. And he was able to do that because he followed Jesus, the one who gave his life for all of us, who also stretched out his hands to his persecutors, said, do your worst, do your worst. I live my life by a better way, the way of love. My brothers, my sisters, my friends today, wherever you are in faith and your journey in life, love makes this world go round. The Beatles got it right, <laughs> okay? They really did. A lot of other things they didn't, okay? But all you need is love, and that alone comes from God. So as we conclude today, let's just pray before we hand back to the team. Let's just reflect on our own lives and where we are with all of this. You need to know today that you are deeply, deeply loved. Whatever your views on God or beliefs about Him, whatever your journey, however you've experienced with churches, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, you are loved. You are made to be loved. You are made to reflect love in your life. That's why you're here. God is here today in this room. Oh, He's here. You maybe can't see Him or feel Him, but He's here. He's whispering to you these words, you are loved. You're made to show love to others. Just surrender. Just let go and let me love you. Let me show how much I love you. And then through you, let me demonstrate that love. And this week, whether it's in a small or great action, there'll be all kinds of ways you can do it. Look for a way to love. And so, Lord, we can't do this, but we want to be this kind of people. And so today, take us, help us to be people who live lives of love and show this world that you're real, but also show this world what you are really like. In Jesus' name, amen.